Book One, Sections Nine through Eleven of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book One, The Domain of King Cole, Section Nine. There was one of Mary Burke's remarks upon which Hal soon got light her statement that North Valley was a place of fear. He listened to the tales of these underworld men until it came so that he shuddered with dread each time that he went down in the cage. There was a wire-haired and almond-eyed Korean named Cho, a rope-rider in Hal's part of the mine. He was one of those who had charge of the long trains of cars called trips, which were hauled through the main passageways, the name Rope-Rider came from the fact that he sat on the heavy iron ring to which the rope was attached. He invited Hal to a seat with him, and Hal accepted, at peril of his job as well as of his limbs. Cho had picked up what he fondly thought was English, and now and then one could understand a word. He pointed upon the ground and shouted above the rattle of the cars, "'Big dust!' Hal saw that the ground was covered with six inches of coal dust, while on the old disused walls one could write his name in it. "'Much blow up!' said the rope-rider, and when the last empty cars had been shunted off into the working-rooms, and he was waiting to make up a return trip, he labored with gestures to explain what he meant. "'Load cars! Bang! Bust like hell!' Hal knew that the mountain air in this region was famous for its dryness. He learned now that the quality which meant life to invalids from every part of the world meant death to those who toiled to keep the invalids warm. Driven through the mines by great fans, this air took out every particle of moisture, and left coal dust so thick and dry that there were fatal explosions from the mere friction of loading shovels. So it happened that these mines were killing several times as many men as other mines throughout the country. "'Was there no remedy for this?' Hal asked, talking with one of his mule-drivers, Tim Rafferty, the evening after his ride with Cho. "'There was a remedy,' said Tim. "'The law required sprinkling the mines with adobe dust. And once, in Tim's life, he remembered this law's being obeyed. There had come some big fellows, inspecting things, and previous to their visit there had been an elaborate campaign of sprinkling. But that had been several years ago, and now the apparatus was stored away, nobody knew where, and one heard nothing about sprinkling. It was the same with precautions against gas. The North Valley mines were especially gassy, it appeared. In these old rambling passages one smelt a stink as of all the rotten eggs in all the barnyards of the world, and this sulfuretted hydrogen was the least dangerous of the gases against which a miner had to contend. There was the dreaded choke-damp, which was odorless and heavier than air. Striking into soft, greasy coal, one would open a pocket of this gas, a deposit laid up for countless ages, awaiting its predestined victim. A man might sink to sleep as he lay at work, and if his buddy or helper happened to be out of sight and to delay a minute too long, it would be all over with the man. And there was the still more dreaded fire-damp, 
which might wreck a whole mine and kill scores and even hundreds of men. Against these dangers there was a fire-boss, whose duty was to go through the mine, testing for gas, and making sure that the ventilating course was in order, and the fans working properly. The fire-boss was supposed to make his rounds in the early morning, and the law specified that no one should go to work till he had certified that all was safe. But what if the fire-boss overslept himself, or happened to be drunk? It was too much to expect thousands of dollars to be lost for such a reason. So sometimes one saw men ordered to their work, and sent down grumbling and cursing. Before many hours some of them would be prostrated with headache, and begging to be taken out, and perhaps the superintendent would not let them out, because if a few came the rest would get scared and want to come also. Once, only last year, there had been an accident of that sort. A young mule-driver, a Croatian, told Hal about it while they sat munching the contents of their dinner-pails. The first cage-load of men had gone down into the mine, sullenly protesting, and soon afterwards someone had taken down a naked light, and there had been an explosion which had sounded like the blowing up of the inside of the world. Eight men had been killed, the force of the explosion being so great that some of the bodies had been wedged between the shaft wall and the cage, and it had been necessary to cut them to pieces to get them out. It was them Japs that were to blame, vowed Hal's informant. They hadn't ought to turn them loose in coal mines, for the devil himself couldn't keep a Jap from sneaking off to get a smoke. So Hal understood how North Valley was a place of fear. What tales the old chambers of these mines could have told if they had had voices! Hal watched the throngs pouring into their labors, and reflected that according to the statisticians of the government, eight or nine of every thousand of them were destined to die violent deaths before a year was out, and some thirty more would be badly injured. And they knew this, they knew it better than all the statisticians of the government, yet they went to their tasks. Reflecting upon this, Hal was full of wonder. What was the force that kept men at such a task? Was it a sense of duty? Did they understand that society had to have coal, and that someone had to do the dirty work of providing it? Did they have a vision of a future, great and wonderful, which was to grow out of their ill-requited toil? Or were they simply fools or cowards, submitting blindly, because they had not the wit nor the will to do otherwise. Curiosity held him. He wanted to understand the inner souls of these silent and patient armies, which through the ages have surrendered their lives to other men's control. End of Section 9 Section 10 Hal was coming to know these people, to see them no longer as a mass, to be despised or pitied in bulk, but as individuals, with individual temperaments and problems, exactly like people in the world of the sunlight. Mary Burke and Tim Rafferty, Cho the Korean, and Madvik the Croatian, one by one these individualities etched themselves into the foreground of Hal's picture, making it a thing of life 
moving him to sympathy and fellowship. Some of these people, to be sure, were stunted and dulled to a sordid ugliness of soul and body, but on the other hand some of them were young, and had the light of hope in their hearts, and the spark of rebellion. There was Andy, a boy of Greek parentage. Androculos was his right name, but it was too much to expect anyone to get that straight in a coal camp. Hal noticed him at the store, and was struck by his beautiful features, and the mournful look in his big black eyes. They got to talking, and Andy made the discovery that Hal had not spent all his time in coal camps, but had seen the great world. It was pitiful, the excitement that came into his voice. He was yearning for life, with its joys and adventures, and it was his destiny to sit ten hours a day by the side of a chute, with the rattle of coal in his ears, and the dust of coal in his nostrils, picking out slate with his fingers. He was one of many scores of breaker boys. "'Why don't you go away?' asked Hal. "'Christ, how I get away! Godmother, two sisters!' "'And your father?' So Hal made the discovery that Andy's father had been one of those men whose bodies had had to be cut to pieces to get them out of the shaft. Now the son was chained to the father's place, until his time too should come. "'Don't want to be minor!' cried the boy. "'Don't want to get killed!' He began to ask, timidly, what Hal thought he could do if he were to run away from his family and try his luck in the world outside. Hal, striving to remember where he had seen olive-skinned Greeks with big black eyes in this beautiful land of the free, could hold out no better prospect than a shoe-shining parlor, or the wiping out of wash-bowls in a hotel lavatory, handing over the tips to a fat padroni. Andy had been to school, and had learned to read English, and the teacher had loaned him books and magazines with wonderful pictures in them. Now he wanted more than pictures. He wanted the things which they portrayed. So Hal came face to face with one of the difficulties of mine operators. They gathered a population of humble serfs, selected from twenty or thirty races of hereditary bondsmen, but owing to the absurd American custom of having public schools, the children of this population learned to speak English, and even to read it. So they became too good for their lot in life, and then a wandering agitator would get in, and all of a sudden there would be hell. Therefore, in every coal camp had to be another kind of fire-boss, whose duty it was to guard against another kind of explosions not of carbon monoxide, but of the human soul. The immediate duties of this office in North Valley devolved upon Jeff Cotton, the camp marshal. He was not at all what one would have expected from a person of his trade, lean and rather distinguished-looking, a man who in evening clothes might have passed for a diplomat. But his mouth would become ugly when he was displeased and he carried a gun with six notches upon it. Also he wore a deputy sheriff's badge, to give him immunity for other notches he might wish to add. When Jeff Cotton came near, any man who was explosive went off to be explosive by himself. So there was order in North Valley, 
and it was only on Saturday and Sunday nights when the drunks had to be suppressed, or on Monday mornings when they had to be hailed forth and kicked to their work, that one realized upon what basis this order rested. Besides Jeff Cotton and his assistant Bud Adams, who wore badges and were known, there were other assistants who wore no badges and were not supposed to be known. Coming up in the cage one evening, Hal made some remark to the Croatian mule driver, Madvik, about the high price of company store merchandise, and was surprised to get a sharp kick on the ankle. Afterwards, as they were on their way to supper, Madvik gave him the reason. "'Red-faced feller, Gus, look out for him, company spotter.' "'Is that so?' said Hal, with interest. "'How do you know?' "'I know. Everybody know.' "'He don't look like he had much sense,' said Hal, who had got his idea of detectives from Sherlock Holmes. "'No take much sense. Go pit boss, say, "'Joe feller talk too much. Say store rob him. Any damn fool do that, hey?' "'To be sure,' admitted Hal. "'And the company pays him for it?' Pit-boss pay him. Maybe give him drink, maybe two bits. Then Pit-boss come to you. You shoot your mouth off too much, feller. Get the hell out of here. See? Hal saw. So you go down canyon. Then maybe you go another mine. Boss say, where you work? You say, North Valley. He say, what your name? You say, Joe Smith. He say, wait. He go in, look at paper. He come out, say, no job. You say, why not? He say, "'Shoot off your mouth too much, feller. Get the hell out of here. See?' "'You mean a blacklist,' said Hal. "'Sure, blacklist. Maybe telephone. Find out all about you. You do anything bad, like talk union.' Madvik had dropped his voice and whispered the word union. "'They send your picture. Don't get job nowhere in state. How you like that?' End of Section 10 Section 11 Before long, Hal had a chance to see this system of espionage at work, and he began to understand something of the force which kept these silent and patient armies at their tasks. On a Sunday morning, he was strolling with his mule-driver friend Tim Rafferty, a kindly lad with a pair of dreamy blue eyes in his coal-smutted face. They came to Tim's home, and he invited Hal to come in and meet his family. The father was a bowed and toil-worn man, but with tremendous strength in his solid frame, the product of many generations of labor in coal mines. He was known as Old Rafferty, despite the fact that he was well under fifty. He had been a pit boy at the age of nine, and he showed Hal a faded leather album with pictures of his ancestors in the old country, men with sad, deeply lined faces, sitting very stiff and solemn to have their presentments made permanent for posterity. The mother of the family was a gaunt, gray-haired woman with no teeth, but with a warm heart. Hal took to her, because her home was clean. He sat on the family doorstep, amid a crowd of little Rafferty's with newly washed Sunday faces, and fascinated them with tales of adventures cribbed from Clark Russell and Captain Maine Reed. As a reward he was invited to stay for dinner, and had a clean knife and fork 
and a clean plate of steaming hot potatoes, with two slices of salt pork on the side. It was so wonderful that he forthwith inquired if he might forsake his company boarding-house and come and board with them. Mrs. Rafferty opened wide her eyes. "'Sure,' exclaimed she. "'Do you think you'd be let?' "'Why not?' asked Hal. "'Sure, t'would be a bad example for the others.' "'Do you mean I have to board at Reminitsky's?' "'There be six company boarding-houses,' said the woman. "'And what would they do if I came to you?' First you'd get a hint, and then you'd go down the canyon, and maybe us after ye.' "'But there's lots of people have boarders in Shantytown,' objected Hal. "'Oh, them wops! Nobody counts them. They live any way they happen to fall. But you started at Reminitsky's, and would not be healthy for them that took ye away.' "'I see,' laughed Hal. "'There seem to be a lot of unhealthy things hereabouts.' "'Sure there be. They sent down Nick Ammons because his wife bought milk down the canyon. They had a sick baby, and it's not much you get in this thin stuff at the store. They put chalk in it, I think. Anyway, you can see something white in the bottom.' "'So you have to trade at the store, too?' "'I thought you said you'd worked in coal-mines.' put in old Rafferty, who had been a silent listener. "'So I have,' said Hal, "'but it wasn't quite that bad.' "'Sure,' said Mrs. Rafferty. "'I'd like to know where t'was, then, in this country. Me and me old man spent weary years a-hunting.' Thus far the conversation had proceeded naturally, but suddenly it was as if a shadow passed over it, a shadow of fear. Hal saw old Rafferty look at his wife, and frown and make signs to her. After all, what did they know about this handsome young stranger, who talked so glibly, and had been in so many parts of the world? "'Tis not complaining we'd be,' said the old man. And his wife made haste to add, "'If they let peddlers and the like of them come in, t'would be no end to it, I suppose. We find they treat us here as well as anywhere.' "'Tis no joke, the life of workin' men, wherever ye try it,' added the other, and when young Tim started to express an opinion, they shut him up with such evident anxiety that Hal's heart ached for them, and he made haste to change the subject. End of section 11